Hundreds in a Tampa audience captivated as acrobats swing overhead. Then horror. These images showing the performer plummeting to the hard stage below. How much, especially those that are in high risk discipline, so those that could lose their life uh, doing what they do. In the past decade, Cirque du Soleil has had several onstage accidents, including its first fatality in 2013. A lot of them, it's for the emotional regulation. It's gone! Michel Sharma does the job. He's third for the match. And I wasn't as interested in that from an athlete perspective or a performer or an operator perspective, but certainly from the instructor. How do we create that for them? So why is it that the beast so damn Because for me, it's all about modeling. It's about modeling. And if we want our athletes to perform under pressure, then we need to show that we can do that ourselves as, as coaches and instructors. So damn Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. My name is Paddy Steinfurt, your host, and we've got a couple of guests today on this episode who are going to make for a fascinating conversation, particularly around the ability to be adaptable and creative under pressure. Whoa, that's a great start. The first guest is Veronique <laughs> Richard from Cirque du Soleil, primarily as a mental performance coach. Vero, welcome. Thank you. Honored to be here. Uh, it's great to have you here. So I met you the first time when you were working particularly with Cirque du Soleil. I know that you've branched out a little more with that, but can you tell us a bit more about the work that you do with performers? Yeah, so at Cirque, we have a different way to operate with artists. So there's one side of my job, which is providing individual one-on-one -on -one meeting with artists that either might go through a tough time or just want to optimize their performance. Uh, sometimes when the newcomers are uh, coming into circus, they need a little bit of guidance and they might be a little bit stressed out to be on one of the biggest circ stage uh, in the world. So I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one, and recently we've just launched, <laughs> which was unfortunately short because of the current situation, but we launched a program which uh, make me go on tour with the different shows. So I was spending a few days, so usually five days on show uh, to really uh, prevent problem from happening. So I was uh, mainly doing workshop with artists on topics that were really relevant to their reality. After a few years working with them, I have a few topics uh, that I knew was relevant. And then we organized this most of the time with performance medicine. So I was really working uh, hand in hand with what we call at sort PMED. Uh, so they are the physio uh, usually working uh, with the artist. So yeah, that, that's a, a little bit of the work that I'm doing with Cirque. Awesome stuff. We'll dig back into those. You said there's a few common themes and, and classes that you do. We'll circle back to that. But I, I want to dig into one of the things you mentioned there was newcomers, which yeah. I was quite surprised to, to learn. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be surprised that some of the new artists, as they're referred to in Cirque du Soleil, because it is an art and a performance on stage, um, they do some pretty amazing shit, though, and it turns out that some of them have a background that you wouldn't expect, that, that there's some transfer over from people like X Games competitors. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, well, Circus has expanded a lot. His... Um 
uh, recruitment, if I can say. So the casting is becoming more and more large since some of our show now are really having different type of arts. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about the new show in Vegas Run, which there was some motorcycles, uh, BMX, like there's a lot of BMX, sorry. Uh, there's a lot of different artists and we have a huge amount of our artists that are coming from sport. Uh, so, of course, the obvious gymnastic, trampoline, diving, but sometimes they come from other sports as well. So when they arrive, they don't necessarily have any artistic background. It's not because you were a male gymnast that you had any like performance on, on stage experience. Uh, when I was doing my internship in 2011, there was this uh, program where everyone that wanted to be part of circus, any artist, had to go through a 10 weeks um, development program where they were receiving, uh, yes, artistic training, acrobatic training, but also mental performance, nutrition, strength, strength and conditioning. Unfortunately, since 2013, this program uh, was abandoned, but now we are trying to bring back this type of mentality with different programs that bring athlete or different performers into circus to teach them which we call most of the time ppp um so to teach them what it is to be an artist because it's not only about the acrobatic or the like movement performance it's also about the presence on stage and the artistic side of things right our second guest is a friend of mine from back in australia darren holder you'll hear me refer to him as stubby throughout the show that's his uh, his nickname Stub, welcome aboard. Thanks, Paddy. Great to be here, mate, and appreciate the opportunity. No, I think uh, I think both of you, even though there's very different backgrounds there, it's going to make for a fascinating conversation. Darren, uh, for a number of years, uh, more than half a decade, was head of elite coaching with Cricket Australia. For those of you from America who have not much idea what that is, it's basically the rest of the world's baseball. And it is a, a, a very intense schedule, more than anything, similar to baseball, the the game itself is relatively slow-paced with some bursts of activity, but the touring is brutal, and there's a lot of uh, work behind the scenes to help people get through some of that grind and also learning and getting better at the same time. And uh, Stubby, can you tell us a little more about what your work was like there with the coaches in particular? Yeah, perfect, mate. Um, I guess my role is slightly different working with the coaches to help them understand better how they can build mental skills into the players and so how they integrate their staff. So my job's been effectively helping coaches get better over the last five, six, but even even best part of two decades, really, the work that I've done across cricket and other sports. Um, but specifically in cricket, working with Justin to prepare him to take on that role and all the other coaches to rise the tide of how we understand not just the X's and O's, but how we relate to the individuals within a team, how we build teams, how we build culture, and certainly how we teach all the other skills outside the technical, tactical stuff. We, we want to make sure that we can integrate with the S&Cs and make sure that they're physically ready. But mentally, as you said, it's a grind. Playing for five days in a row where you may not get a result at the end of those five days um, can be very testing. Or for some players where they walk out in the middle and, face one delivery, so one pitch, and then they're out of there. So um, there's certainly lots of failure, like there is in baseball, and the ebbs and flows and coaches' ability to deal with the players individually about that is paramount. 
Yeah, and, and you mentioned there that the differences, obviously, between working with a frontline performer, someone who's actually on the stage, and that's the person that people pay to come and see do their thing in these arenas, but the coaches are performers themselves in some ways, and they're under just as much pressure. I asked this of a lot of the guests. Is there a moment or a, a, an example or an analogy you can share of what I call the sweaty palms moment? the six or seven second gap where it's like this is a big high stakes moment for that performer and I'm asking specifically about the coaches what would be their sweaty palms moment as a coach in professional international cricket I think they have many of them because of the way that the game fluctuates and the momentum swings but I guess the one that would arise regularly and and more consistently will be that moment where they know they've done all the work but it's a game in which it's different to many sports that people in North America would experience that the coach can't intervene tactically once the game starts. So their sweaty palms are probably there consistently throughout the day, but just before the start of play when they walk across the, the rope, as we call it, to the players enter the field and the captain is now in charge. So it's about have we done everything possible to prepare ourselves for what we're about to encounter, but also for our opposition. So I guess that... Um, most of the head coaches particularly will find that moment like, oh, you know, have we done everything in our powers to prepare everyone for every every situation that might present in the in the next little bit? Yeah, a great example and, and probably something that a lot of leaders in many different industries would, would feel as their charges go into battle, depending on the arena, obviously. But Vero, is there an example that you can think of you got a bit of time there after I asked Stubby that to think about your answer. What would be the sweaty palms moment for a Cirque du Soleil performer? I'm sure there's many given that there's huge trapeze acts and bicycles spinning around and all sorts of things. What would you say is a, is a, a great example that you've seen of that kind of a moment? Well, that's interesting because uh, with the new project I was talking to you about, I get to spend a lot of time backstage with them. So there's a lot of informal discussion going on. And this is a question that I like to ask them because let's take a clown. Uh, the clown is not necessarily a dangerous discipline, right? They won't hurt themselves. But the clown in circus are often the main character. They are the one kind of linking everything together. And they repeat the same thing night after night, most of the time twice a night. And I ask them like, isn't it like becoming redundant? And are, are you still having those sweaty palms that you're talking about? And all of them, they, they are telling me when you step, like the, the, the few seconds right before to step on stage, there's always this rush, which they describe differently. It's not the same experience for everyone, but as much as they can make like 400 shows a year, they will still get this moment right before to enter on stage where there's like this little activation of the system. And this is from most of them, what they are telling me, what make them enjoy this and also uh, perform well and give all they have to the audience. Because compared to sports, which you perform in front of an audience. In circus, you perform for the audience. So you really have to create this connection and the audience will never be the same, which means that you need to offer your best every single time. So yeah, I would say maybe the few seconds before to step on stage is definitely something that I hear often from them. Right. And, and that's interesting to note that both of them, even though they're very different types of performers, it's that pre, like just before we jump, right? Yeah. 
and it's it's often the type of folks that that we will work with as mental performance coaches. I've worked across some a variety of sports, and there are other industries in life where the same thing happens. That some groups, some research groups, call them mission critical teams or operators, where if they're you know it's a very tough thing they're trying to do, very hard exercise. There's big risk involved or big reward either way. So there's a lot lined up, high stakes, but also it's a constrained time. Like you don't have a chance to back out and wait. Like it has to happen now. Mm -hmm. And that's really what creates, like you said, Vero, that rush that a lot of people in the who work in that industry and who are performers or work around it, that's kind of what's what they're addicted to. Um, let me let me change tack for a little bit and rather than just focus on that sweaty palms moment, take back to a 30,000 foot view, Vero, with, within the circus and with your work with those performers, what would you say toughness is? What, is? what does toughness look like in the circus? It's a really interesting question. You know, it could look like so many things because there's so many. First, yes, the variety of the discipline and circus is really broad, but also the cultural background. Uh, we have really, really many different countries represented at Cirque. And I think that makes a difference in your perception of what it is to be tough. Uh, for the Russian, for instance, it will be really different than for us Canadian, which we are a little bit more what some people like call soft, which I disagree, <laughs> but uh, some people would, would say that. Uh, so one thing that I observe, I, can I pick two, two, yeah, um, sure. two yeah. factors? They're your, they're your crowd. You do what you want. Uh, so, of course, adaptability, those that really can adapt to any situation from the really short-term situation, something happened on stage. And like in circus, something that people might not know is that the music is live. So the musician, for instance, if one artist fall down, they need to make the track, the musical track again, because that means it will take time for the artist to stand up and then to, and sometimes the artist will decide to do the tricks again, because this is the big trick and they want to show the audience. So there's this huge adaptability going on. Like the, one of the thing I love the most when I go on show, it's to go on this, like um, the, how do we call them? The, um, musical director the one that is really in charge it's not the name they give them but it will come back to me and you go in their boots like in their little spot wherever they are it's different on each show and then you see how like they call everything they call everything for the musician and everything is live and they have to adapt if someone if the musician is not fully attentive he will miss the call and if he missed the call then the music is totally uh, mixed up and then the artist will notice it. I've seen the last show I know the show before I don't remember the um, uh, band lead this is what I was searching for so the band lead make a made a mistake on the previous show and just like the amount like the whole pause in between the the two shows she was just reviewing like what did I do wrong? Why didn't I see that? And then she was going through in her head. And there's a really uh, nice team spirit in circus. So the, the artists that were on stage when she made that mistake, they came to her and they like they just worked together into adapting to the next show. So there's beautiful thing happening, but definitely adaptability is one. That was one. What's two? Yeah. The other one, I read recently something in the literature which explained like to me a lot of things and it's like 
how much, especially those that are in high risk discipline, so those that could lose their life uh, doing what they do, we think that it's for the rush of adrenaline that they will tend to kind of get involved in those activity. But I saw a research recently which said a lot of them, it's for the emotional regulation. So, you know, you get the rush, you get the, like, the feeling of being a little out of control, but this capacity to regulate your emotion and feel in control, although you're facing a really dangerous situation, is a reason why uh, people like high-risk activity. And when I think back at so many comments that artists are like telling me, such as, I like when I feel like the, the adrenaline coming, but just focusing on my breath and really feeling connected with my apparatus. A lot of them, like the object they are working with is really connected with them. So that makes sense. So emotional regulation, and it's not just to um, suppress your emotion, it's to use the emotion to perform at your best. And this is what I would say artists do the best they really use any emotion that can come their way but they use them in a functional way and not in a dysfunctional way so this regulation and maybe regulation is not right as a word because it seems to be like you should suppress or you should control but it's more embracing the emotional experience and being really able to perform your best with the emotion so i think those would be my two uh answer Two very good ones. And, and you you're made an interesting point there at the end that it's not all about suppression. I wanted to highlight that, it, that it's actually about sometimes channeling, knowing that the emotion's there and still doing what you need to do. So it's Yeah. Really a lot of artists goes, go through a really tough time. And this is the moment when sometimes they perform the best because they can bring something more on stage to share with the audience. Yeah. yeah. Um, Stubby, um, Stubby. Your, uh, your work with the coaches is – a little less about developing what would traditionally be referred to as toughness, but particularly in line with the first point Vero just made around toughness actually being in part flexibility and adaptability, your, your ability to, to change based on the conditions and whatever's in front of you. How, how much does adaptability come into being a good coach or particularly da- taking someone like Justin Langer, the head coach of Australia, and being able to take them from a player who played and was successful and they're now a coach and they're probably coaching the way that they were coached they're leading the way they saw leaders lead. And so that's what they think is right. How much of your work is helping to expand their mind and and make them flexible in different coaching and leadership approaches? Yeah, it's a great question. I really like the analogy that Vero used around what I would consider the the conductor, you know, that you're trying to provide them with this opportunity to lead and all the members of the band, whichever their role be in a cricket team or a football team, they know those with some real clarity and be able to perform them. Um, So I think when you threw around the toughness piece, I was thinking about their ability to just be the calm and and consider and be consistent with their response as opposed to being reactive. So I think responding to the stimulus as opposed to reacting is a really key factor. So there's flexibility, but it's a flexibility in that they've taken in all those stimulus and tried to kind of level out um, the emotions that probably the performers are experiencing a bit more that Vera referred to. So the coach is a bit of a thermostat, you know, try and keep things level, but they also need to be authentic. So that's that's the one thing that young coaches really struggle with, Patty, is um, being someone that they were in a previous part of their life, maybe as a player 
or trying to be that coach that they had, you know, so whether it be in a football code, whether it be cricket or any other domain, I think we have a range of coaches through our sporting careers, but then we need to still be you. And so finding themselves is part of the role that I play for them. And I've seen some tremendous growth in coaches where they've really invested in that part to try and get to know themselves. And then they find that that really opens the door to them being able to connect more strongly with the people around them. And then guess what? It takes care of itself from there. You know, the X's and O's start to fall into place and and the strategies and the missions or the performances uh, take care of themselves. Yeah. You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank, with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booz Allen Hamilton. Coming up later in the show. And put them in other situations which were going to either scare the shit out of them or actually force them into uncomfortable situations where they have to respond. I was struck, as you said that, the the authenticity, which I didn't expect to come up. But when you think about it, a lot of the time when we're, particularly when we're in front of people, we're trying to perform. This is as leaders, as coaches, as actual performers. Like one of the hardest things to do is just to be yourself because you put up a shield, you're trying to maintain the mask, but also do the job. And I was on a call with uh, a major league baseball team coordinator and coaching staff earlier this week, actually, and they've just had the major league draft. They're going to get some new players in. They're not going to be able to meet with them like they normally do, just ship them all down to Florida and have a camp with them. They're going to meet them probably like this, a Zoom call, funnily enough, in this day and age. And one of the biggest points that we we ended up bringing up was that authenticity is probably one of the most underutilized but powerful weapons for leaders, and it's pretty tough to do. For all those reasons I just listed, but the benefits are clear. There's a lot of research that shows you get more spontaneity and more energy from your followers. If you lead with authenticity, you get people will give you longer attention spans if you're just acting like yourself. And people will probably uh, commit to whatever you're asking them to do for longer as well. So you get more what they call discretionary effort. People will go the extra yard. And all of those, are it's supposedly because I don't have to think whether you're bullshitting me or not. I don't have to have part of my brain set aside to do the filter of like, is he saying this for me or is this because he wants to look like he's tough? Once they don't have to filter, people are allowed, they're, they're able to be themselves because it sets an example and then they can fully engage in the task as well. So a really interesting point you raised, which I wasn't expecting, but it is super important and is super tough for leaders as well. Tell us a little more on your side of the fence, Vero, or what are they, I guess there's no fence in circus, right? I guess on your side of the stage, Backstage, front of the curtain, whatever it is. Well, there's everything is possible in circus, so there could okay. be a fence if you want. There's to a fence in. somewhere. They, they got to keep people out. So, on your side of the fence with the circus performers, when you're talking to them about being able to be in the moment, so you you mentioned a little bit around being adaptable. Um, you also mentioned their ability to have the emotion and not try and run away from it. Maybe deal with it or just channel it. When you're trying to help them sit there, how much does authenticity come into that for them? Like their ability to not try and play a certain role or be a certain person they're expected to be? It's quite ironic, right? Because, okay, funny story. I guess this is part of what we're doing now. You know, when I meet them in the afternoon, they are what I will call 
normal person. Like they're not makeup, makeup or anything. They don't have their costume. So uh, one of the last show I did before this pandemic uh, crisis hit us, there was a, we had a really good conversation with one of the artists during the afternoon. That was really cool. And at night, he is dressed up in a frog. So literally his whole face is green with those yellow eyes and those little dots. And he is wearing this thing that prevent me from seeing uh, his hair. And then he's talking to me, but I should have recognized the voice, but you know, there it's a really big crew. There's a hundred people on, on that crew and I meet a lot of people. And then I'm like, oh, that's really cool. Um, where are you from? And then he looked at me and he was like, what do you mean? We talked like for 30 minutes this afternoon. I, I told you that. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I, I just did not recognize you. Right. And then he started laughing and he was like, in any other circumstances, I would have been a, a little offended, but now I kind of understand. So all this to say that it's ironic because none of those artists are playing their own self when they step on stage. They are always costume and always like playing a character that doesn't belong to who they are necessarily. Yet, they will always tell me that authenticity and stepping on stage with your true self is one of the most important thing to connect with the audience. Um, again, I will come back on cl with clowns, but I had a, like maybe one of the most amazing discussion with a clown recently. And for him, there's kind of this triangle, which is like one side of the triangle, it's him like the real him in real life then there's his clown and then there's kind of this other character that lie in between and this is the connection with the audience and like artists this is what I love working with artists they need to think about those things they need to dig deeper into themselves and figure out a way to bring their true self on stage so like you were just talking your example about a coach that is authentic will catch attention longer and maybe like the attention because you won't say is he like fooling me or anything like that well with artists it's super important that the minute the second they step on stage they need to have all the eyes on them and to do this there's no other choice than finding your true self and be authentic to yourself and that's why it was really good when they were coming to Montreal, uh, all of them before to go on like a show because it allowed the professional at Circus to develop this capacity in them. Not that they cannot do it by experience, but for sure it's, it's maybe better if you have a little bit of support before to step on stage. And you need to be more naked than you think to step on stage and really connect with the audience. And this is what makes the difference bef between the best artists and those that are performers, I will say. Like, it, there's a difference and you can see it on stage. I would say that my karaoke skills would, would show that out. Uh, the real <laughs> performers are able to do it. I just I just pretend when I'm doing that. I'm interested, Stubby, that because a lot of the population that you work with around, you, you now consult as a coach development expert in many sports. But often the sporting environment is not one where people are prone to think and dig deeper about themselves, right? They're like, Vero, you said you're blessed to work with performers who almost have a need, a want to explore themselves more and find that expression. And, you know, that triangle is a great, a great metaphor, a great model. I, I'm hard-pressed to think of 
maybe 25% of the athletes or coaches that I might've worked with in sport who would be even close to doing that themselves, let alone willing for me to push them there. How do you find that? They should all do this, but that's (laughs) should is a great word. Stubby, what's your experience with that in in pro sport? Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's funny, isn't it? Like we have the the performers that Vero is talking about, the artists who are really looking for themselves so that they can be their character, yet athletes and coaches to a, a certain extent are trying to create a character so they can be someone that they're not. <laughs> so it's on its head in, in many ways and, and you see that and I think the best ones, those that are um, experienced and have had some success and, and have built expertise over time, they are themselves, the Belichicks, the Popoviches and certainly in, in that part of the world and then you look down in our part of the world, the people that, like Craig Bellamy and Wayne Bennett, even though they're very different personalities, they know who they are and they're able to be themselves 100% of the time and that's what it takes. Um, so I was listening to Vero and, and when you pose that question, Patty, I think it's all about believability, right? So you, the players have a BS filter. They know if the coach is talking rubbish and not being who they are. They've got the best like, nose for bullshit in the business. Exactly. So, you know, the performers the people they're trying to convince are the audience. So they they have to be true right from the start because if the audience doesn't believe it, you're not selling the show. Whereas in our sporting environments, I think the coach needs to be, and belief is about that trust piece, right? So if we talk about, you know, Covey's model of trust, it's about character and confidence and they need to show they know what they're on, they know their stuff, but they are also genuine and authentic in the way that they build that belief in others. So I think um, those two pieces are really critical. So the, tr- the, the coaches that create an environment of trust really early um, are the ones that can start to build something special uh, and, and players, I guess, are part of that process. So those that are able to let their guard down and be themselves are certainly going to have so much more growth possible, whether it be on the field, but certainly off the field and being able to lead and to do other things post their sporting careers. Yeah. We've talked ourselves into a twist here. Let me reflect two (laughs) things that all of us have said that don't seem to gel at first glance. So we're we're all agreeing that toughness is in a significant way is about adaptability. Your ability to deal with shit, change, adapt, move, shift, whatever. And then at the same time, we're saying, you know, it's really tough as a leader to just be yourself. Don't change. (laughs) Right? So we're saying toughness is being able to change and toughness is being able to not change. Any, either of you can take this one. How do you solve that? Like, tell, tell me I how mean, that's wrong. I see a difference between being and doing. I think you need to be authentic in who you are, so the way you're being, and you need to be adaptable in what you're doing, if that makes any sense. So I think there's just a big difference here in the, or the how and the what, if you want, like how you are and you project yourself is different than what you will do and the, the what needs to be adapt- adaptable. Uh, the how and your true self, the, the way you, you are, the being, that's, that's on you and that can be quite stable if it's you and if it's who you are. It's my take on this, but maybe. I like, I like the quick, it sounds like you've said that before, but I, I don't know if we've had that discussion. But being able to say the difference between the being, question. different between being and doing. I, I like yeah. that. Simple, simple delineation. Stubby, you got anything to add there? Uh, I think that's a, a really good way of putting it, yeah. Uh, it's, it's about the response, right? So you still got to be you but respond in a way which is trying to solve the problem um, in being 
flexible in what, what the solution might look like. Yeah, right. So it's flexible about it's, solutions. Correct. Right. It's not being fixed on this is the outcome because this is what we've always done. No, no, no. I've, I've actually got to be me here and take all in, take in all the stimulus but then respond in a way which is going to benefit the situation. Right. Or, or as, you know, this is going to disappoint fans of Star Wars and The Mandalorian, but saying this is the way every time is not always the right way. Perhaps adaptability could help him sometimes. Sorry if you're going to put your hand up there, Vera. You don't like my analogy from Star Wars? Or? <laughs> I was just, no, I was just going to say that actually uh, Stubby and I kind of test this quite often with coaches so we've developed this like movement improvisation and maybe Stubby you want to talk a little bit more about uh, why we brought coaches to do this, but this is kind of a lab, a lab. I won't say the whole word because it won't sound super well. Uh, a laboratory? Yeah, this okay. word won't, it won't make it. Say it, say it in your, in your accent. Laboratoire. Oh, yeah, there you go. That's much better than my stupid accent. Go ahead. All the words that are quite similar, it's the toughest to pronounce, whatever. <laughs> so we, we've tested this approach where we totally ask coaches to be fully vulnerable in activities that are just totally silly. I use movement a lot to make people move in crazy ways. And I just um, want to catch you. Just want to catch there. You said a word that, that with the accent people may not have heard. You want people to be fully vulnerable. Right, yeah. that, that's what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry if that was not clear, <laughs> but yeah, exactly. And we we've come came up with this project, and now it's been a few times that we are doing it. And I think the doing and the being is really interesting in this because the doing we ask them to be super ad adaptable, so they move in different situations that like a are a little childish or like going back to really silly type of activity. But if they are not th true to themselves, they have a lot of trouble going through the activity and they feel so uncomfortable until the moment, which is my favorite moment in life, actually, and I'm not joking, when a person decides to let go and to just be who they are. Stop caring about what others think. Stop caring about am I looking okay or not? Am I doing okay or not? It's like not important in those activities. They just need to be who they are and to do spontaneously whatever they are asked for. And maybe Stubb, you can jump in there because you've been a, a big witness of those activities and you've seen coaches evolve, I would say from it, not necessarily because of it, but. Well, well I'll probably back the truck up a bit, Patty, and <laughs> Tell a little bit of the story of how it evolved. I think that's really important yeah, for ahead. because it's definitely about performing under pressure, right? And that's what we're all your listeners are having to do. And um, Vera and I were lucky enough to cross paths, and I was fascinated with, I guess, what Red Bull. By the way, <laughs> yeah, Patty, you actually introduced us to each other, so we crossed paths because of you. I did something right in the last <laughs> ten years. I've done at least one thing right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I was fascinated by the way that Red Bull, with their athletes, provided environments where they were trying to take them totally out of the domains that they were experts in and put them in other situations which were going to either scare the shit out of them or actually force them into uncomfortable situations where they had to respond. And 
I wasn't as interested in that from a athlete perspective or a performer or an operator perspective, but certainly from the instructor, how do we create that for them? Because for me, it's all about modeling. It's about modeling. And if we want our athletes to perform under pressure, then we need to show that we can do that ourselves as, as coaches and instructors. So the opportunity presented, and I, I remember calling Vera when she was doing a postdoc, I think, in, at Florida State University and saying, do you want to come to India? And she's probably thinking, what is this guy from Australia who... No, yeah, those- that's the thing. Do you want to come to India to, go t- to work with cricket coaches? I'm like, what? I don't even know what cricket is, actually. So it was a bit of a test case, let's say, a pilot. I had a captive audience in 30 male Indian coaches and, and it was a chance for us to try some of this stuff out and literally blew them away but also well and truly. I, I was confident that we, having had the conversations we'd had about the research and the intention that Vera was going to present with the movement improvisation activities, that we'd have a really good success but it certainly exceeded all those expectations and then as a result, we've not only built it into all of the learning programs when I have had cricket coaches as a cohort and mixed sport coaches that come to the US and we immerse ourselves in that Cirque du Soleil environment for a day or so, but also Vero's been to Australia now on a number of occasions and we've done tours around creativity and building that capacity for players and coaches alike. So I think um, that's kind of the connection and probably what will create a little bit of interest with your listeners. You are listening to Toughness, and if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review, rate, subscribe, and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... One thing that people could ask themselves, what am I avoiding? Not because I'm not skilled enough, but because it makes me uncomfortable. So damn proud. I want to highlight a couple of things here for listeners. We may not go into all the detail, but we're talking about something called movement improvisation, right? You can Google that. There'll be plenty of it. Look up Vero's name. We'll put some links <laughs> under the episode. Okay, right? maybe not. <laughs> the second part was... That something you mentioned there, Stubby, was modelling and you're not talking about being on a catwalk in Paris. You're talking about acting the way that you want the people you're working with to act, setting an example, right? 100%. I think, you know, it's a true skill for coaches to be able to model behaviours that they espouse and they put on the wall, right? So we've got values-based organisations in sport all over the world and the military have those and all organisations now have their, their standard three or four um, values that they are really standing by. But what's more important than the values on the wall is how we behave on a day-to-day basis. So coaches need to be able to model those things. And if we want to be able to, I wouldn't say um, be be safe in an environment, but be more secure because we're always going to be taking risk in the places that we work in sport. There's always going to be risk, but we want to encourage risk-taking but be supported in that risk-taking and then rewarded for taking the risk even if it doesn't come off at times but right. in, in being spontaneous and taking ourselves to those areas where we don't know the answer but if we don't try we'll never know so right. the modeling of that from a coach perspective is critical so we wanted to one put them in an environment where they were supported by Veronique myself to be secure and not going to injure themselves but also they're going to be very challenged. So mentally, cognitively, but also physically in some of the movements that she is asking them to perform. So that was kind of the 
the baseline or the foundation to then take that into a sporting environment. And we're very fortunate earlier this year um, on a trip to Australia when Verne came down to have some of the coaches that were on a previous trip to America had experienced that. They were able to transfer it into their their club environment. Now I'm talking about Australian Rules Football Club here now. Um, all their coaches, all their performance staff, all the people in supporting athletes were part of a group that went through these activities as were every single one of their, their players. And then the next day we did some education around that process and took it out onto the training field. And to then see the coaches spontaneously without our provocation during the session stand up and model the behaviour. So not to do um, anything that wasn't natural to their football environment, but to do something which was inspired by the day before out on the training track was actually seeing it in action and the players can feel that freedom to say, you know what, they've got my back and I can actually do this as well because the coaches are modelling the things that they believe in and we stand for. Very cool. A lot of the people who are listening to this podcast are not professional athletes or coaches and are not circus performers. I think I would be very interested if the uh, population was mostly circus performers, but they do do hard shit. And this is, you know, some people in the military, obviously we're talking about there, but this could be anyone in everyday life trying to deal with deadlines at work, trying to deal with a presentation that could win them the promotion, trying to deal with a conversation in a relationship that could save or finish it. You know, all humans have to deal with situations that are tough, that have pressure attached. And so I'm curious with what you're talking about there, there were two things you mentioned. One was with the authenticity part of, okay, we get in front of a crowd and we're trying to be more ourselves and less the character in the circus. And then the other way, we get in front of a crowd and we're trying to be less ourselves and more the character. Like either way, they're still in front of a crowd and their whole performance is almost an interaction or, or, or a presentation for the crowd. When, when I'm sitting at home with a computer and I have this deadline or where I'm it's just me and the boss talking or if it's, uh, a girl who's going for her final exam, like there are, there are not, so many more situations in human life where there's not an audience. And so some of the stuff you're talking about there, tell me how that vulnerability and the improvisation adaptability, like what about for the person who doesn't have anyone watching them? How, how can they incorporate that and help them improve their toughness, their ability to handle pressure when it's not about a crowd? I think this first, study. Oh, you take One of you take it. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. You know, I feel you are always in front of the most important audience in your life and it's in front of yourself. And if you cannot be like true to yourself when you're alone, you will not be when you're in an audience, like in front of an audience. And this vulnerability, which was it more clear this time? Much better. <laughs> I, I feel you can practice this on a daily basis. And um, the foundation of what I'm doing, it's pretty much bringing people out of their comfort zone. And we have multiple different comfort zone, right? Uh, maybe you are super comfortable at work with your colleagues and that's good. But when you go out in a pub and you're not with your colleague anymore, now you're becoming super uncomfortable or maybe you're uncomfortable when you are, you're comfortable when you are with friend, but when you are at work. So basically we all have our zone of comfort. And one thing that people could ask themselves at any moment in life is what am 
what am I avoiding? Not because I'm not skilled enough to do it, but because it makes me uncomfortable. And if you can just slowly start setting your environment in a way that it will force you to progressively, not like if there's something that makes you uncomfortable, you don't have to go all out like tomorrow, but like progressively kind of enter in contact with this discomfort, slowly you are expanding your comfort zone. And if you are having a bigger comfort zone, then you are not only becoming more adaptable, but you can be more of yourself in multiple situations because you're comfortable enough to act as yourself. So this is a simple question, but every single person that I've asked uh, this question to kind of have this like moment of, oh, and it can be a ridiculous thing. Like myself, I, I've noticed like raising my hand in a class when there's an expert speaking that will make my heart like beat increase. So when I was doing my master, I decided to slowly raise my hand more often. And then in bigger group, in conferences, in big conferences. So then I'm not saying that my heartbeat is not increasing anymore, but I, I can do it. Like I can do it and be myself when I'm facing those stressful situations. We all get stressed by different things for sure. I think it's a great question. I want to ask you, it's almost like inoculation, right? What you're saying is by doing bit by bit, I'm slowly getting my body used to that reaction. Let me ask you though, you said my comfort zone is expanding, right? Now that could be one or it could just be, I'm still not comfortable, but I'm able to do shit with it, right? Which one is it? It's really interesting. And, you know, I think it's both. Some will just become more tolerant to discomfort, which I feel movement improv is about that, being like more comfortable. I don't think at any point you really actually tolerating discomfort more than becoming comfortable. But sometimes just by trying something, you realize that it wasn't your head. It's a catastrophe scenario that you were creating for yourself. And once you try this thing, then you don't have this catastrophe scenario anymore. So therefore you expand your comfort zone because now you are comfortable. And, and we all have like hundreds of example of situation that we were avoiding. But once we step in, we're like, oh, this is actually fun. Yes, it's actually fun. You well, just well, what if it's not fun? Though? Like I've got a pile of washing over there that I have been avoiding. I, I, I assume you're not talking about that sort of stuff. <laughs> we'll get to that later. Stubby, you, your crowd in particular, more so than the performers, they are performers, we've said, but the coaches don't perform in front of the crowd as often. Or, or if they do, their crowd is really the, the locker room, right? Maybe the boardroom sometimes when they're trying to save their, their job. But it, let's use them as an example perhaps of it's less about who you're performing for. And, and do, you, do, you, do you agree with what Vero said, that the audience is actually yourself? Yeah, and, and the media are probably a big oh, yeah, of player course. in that market as well, you know, for head coaches, particularly when they've got to get to the media. But managing up and the stakeholders around management, board, CEOs, and, and also then, yeah, winning the meeting, like being able to provide the right information to the players at the right time is is crucial. Um, but I really like that um, description that, that Vero provided because I think it really digs into what it looks like, you know, for... for come from a comfortable position and you're trying to make sure that they get some more reps, right? So whether it be uh, emotional skill or an emotional response or a mental response, so whether we're thinking it or whether we're feeling it, we actually need to get reps at doing it to get better at it. 
So I think from a coach's perspective, it's just about setting up like they did as athletes, if they were athletes prior, a routine and ritual that they can follow the process of how they're going to prepare for the meeting, if it's a meeting or a press conference, and then get in there and continue to go through that process and and make sure that it's about the messages that you want to get across, not necessarily having to respond to media all the time and, and, and give them what they want. Make sure it's about how you want to portray the day's play or, or, or the performance that was just taken part. Very cool advice from both of you. Appreciate that. We're going we're gonna to wrap it up here with a question that I often ask people more often than not. We have a, a little hero sitting on our shoulder or in the back of our minds that we don't even know is there. Our beliefs are shaped a lot by the people that we admire or who, who taught us along the way. And sometimes they have a saying that's, that they put it better than us, right? And I'll use an example from my childhood, particularly in, in, in reference to what we're talking about here of not worrying what people think. And my mum was adamant that that was the devil's work and you needed to just be yourself. She came no-nonsense no woman from a country town in Victoria, grew up on a farm, and any time I wanted the, you know, that pair of Jordans or those Reebok pumps or I want that shirt that everyone else has that costs 80 bucks for some reason, she would turn to me and say, it's not a fashion parade, Patty. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. And, and I hated it at the time and uh, it probably reflects in my choice of fashion nowadays, but it really summed up her beliefs and her values around not worrying what people think, that it's more important to be you and do what you do. For each of you, for either of you, is there a hero that you think of in your journey to this point, whether it's from uh, as a psychology student somehow ending up in the circus and then in India working with cricket coaches <laughs> or whether it's a, a young fellow growing up in Australia watching cricket, growing up with it and then ending up moving to the highest point of it, is there someone along the way you think of and you're like, yeah, they were a great example of this and here's how they put it? Stub, that's your call first. I think... The experiences that I've had, Patty, you know, living in different parts of the world, living in India and the Caribbean as well as Australia and the cricketing world, but then now working with sports coaches across, there are just so many that you try and pull pieces from. Um, one of those coaches, and I'm sharing a story sort of third-hand because one of the coaches, he was the, the Team Australia baseball coach for a period of time. He's an American, grew up in Chicago, um, but a very close friend of mine. And I know when he was a rookie coach, in baseball in America, so it might resonate with your viewers. He he was finishing a clinic and, and he ran over to um, a, a well-known Hall of Fame coach, Jim Leyland, who coached the Detroit Tigers at one point, and said, Mr. Leyland, Mr. Leyland, can I ask you some advice? I'm, you know, really keen to get better at this craft of being a baseball coach. And he said, young man, you're not coaching baseballers. You're coaching people in baseball uniforms. And for me, I've always remembered that. And I think it's sort of helped to understand that as I continue to work with coaches, it's not their status as a player, whether they be a great cricketer or footballer who are now going into that coaching realm. It's about teaching them to engage with the person first and that we're trying to make better people first. And I, I guess coaching has developed so much in the last decade that many, many more of the new generation of coach understands that. But I think even those great successes that operate in North American sport, the Belichicks and the Popoviches that we've mentioned before, they understand that players don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So being about the person first and foremost is critical because it opens the door to having a great relationship and connection that can help you to push them harder and be the best person that they can be. 
I love that. And if you were to convert it to, you know, that applies to so many different realms. If you're a leader in the military, you're not leading a soldier, you're leading a human in soldier's uniform. If you're a leader at in a band, you're not necessarily leading a, a musician, you're leading a human who happens to play music. It's really a great, uh, great analogy. I like that one. Vera, you got anything to top that? No, absolutely not. And you, okay, you know, I have always trouble with that question for two main reasons. First, because if I was going to name all the people that have a, that had or have a huge impact in my life, like the list would be so long because I feel grateful full for so many of those, whether it is artists, um, coaches, professors that just guided me in my journey. And the other reason why I'm really, really bad to answer this question, it's because uh, I will illustrate this really simply. I did not recognize Paul McCartney by talking to him for five minutes. So I have a huge problem with names and like kind of having those superstar that I have no clue who they are in life. So um, my hero are those people that I encounter encounter and that I'm pushing to get out of their comfort zone that are resisting at the beginning and that are giving me the look, you know, those rolling eyes or those avoiding behavior or whatever, but that one day they decide to dive in and to give it a chance. And all when I'm giving conference, I will always talk about those people. I never name their name, but for all of those that are willing enough to just take that leap of faith and try something new, try something different. I've seen people crying in my movement improv, I've seen, but, but for the best. And I always have them with me because they are guiding what I'm doing. And I know that even though it's only maybe one or two people, a group that really, really um, get something out of it, I just feel it worth it for those people that were a little bit stuck inside before and that this maybe could have helped them to get out of their shell. So those are my people. That's I'm great. a little disappointed, Patty. I'm a little disappointed that I didn't get a mention, you know, giving Vero all these opportunities to work with coaches, but I wasn't one of the heroes. No, you much. would be the hero. Hey, maybe she'll say it when we get off air, but um, <laughs> it's definitely, it's going to be the next beers on you then, Vero, if you've, if you've let Stubby down like that. I think it's a great way to end the uh, the episode, though, because it's a really a, a perfect way to sum up and a very important part of toughness is just taking a chance, taking a leap and, and diving into something that might be uncomfortable. Usually most of the good things that happen in our life end up happening because we did something that was a little bit tough to start it off. So great way to end it, Vera. And uh, and you do owe Stubby a beer for that, though. So thanks. I want to say thanks very <laughs> no, much to both sure. of you. I'll, I'll give you a beer. I'll pay you a beer next time we see each other and we'll be. Who yes. knows when we can actually get around the world with you. Yeah, true. Yeah. Uh, excellent, with the best of them. Simply 